What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Jimonika Eborn is a survivor, advocate, and mental health professional whose expertise focuses on healing from trauma and sexual assault. Despite experiencing great loss and grief as early as she can remember, she has also always been a loving force to be reckoned with. Thus, she utilizes her own heartbreaking grief and experiences and her status as a co-victim of murder to advocate for victims from marginalized communities and beyond. We are so grateful she joined us today to discuss all that came and still comes next in her journey. My name is Jiminika Eborn. Some folks know me as the trauma queen. I always like to share, I'm going to say a few hard things. So if you need to take a break, if you need to take a breather, please take care of yourself. I've always said that I am a child of trauma. My mother was murdered in front of me when I was one by my sperm donor. It was around Christmas time, which definitely changed Christmas for a lot of my family and the structures of it. From there, I was raised by my grandparents, who are her parents. They were always so loving and caring. They were firm, but also I knew that I was always loved. They have always told me about my mother, and as I got older, they shared more information with me around that. Because of the way that she was murdered, and not she was killed, she was assaulted, and she was murdered. I think that that's also something to very much define. It was purposeful. It was vengeful. I have always had strong women around me. Both of my aunts and my grandmother who raised me, who I call mom, their life wasn't easy. They not only had lost my mother, they also had lost their eldest sister who died of lupus years before. So they have already dealt with loss. Technically, I was everyone's first child in this situation because everyone had a hand in raising me. And I believe that I've taken such interesting components from each of my aunts and from my grandmother. I learned to read really early. I used to say like I was a nosy child. Nope, we've upgraded that language. If you were called nosy, we're just going to call you inquisitive, honey. So I've been an inquisitive person. I was always reading and wanting to know more. There had to be more existing than just what I knew. And I think that that has always contributed to who I am is always being like other people have gone through things. And I want to know what that looks like. I want to know how they experience it. I have the biggest cheerleaders in my corner. I think about this often. I hope that other people are as loved and taken care of as I am. My family loves me. Do they always get me? No. But it's interesting the ways that they do show up. I recently lost my grandfather who raised me. 
they left me in charge of a lot of things. And I'm like, I'm the eldest grandchild, but you got some children here. For him to see me, even being the youngest technically child since I was adopted by them and going, you are the one that can do this. That's a powerful thing that I think continues to show up in all of my relationships. That is in my friendships. I have had some of my closest friends since I was 12 and some of them even younger. And they see me, they call me out on my bullshit. They love me. They force me to slow down and celebrate things. Community is so important and it's not easy. I think that is something that we have to constantly build. And sometimes you bring people in, you got to remove them. That's also okay. But I am who I am because of everyone that I allow to be around me that loves me and pushes me and reminds me that every day is a new day to get through something else. Honestly, I feel like my family and my friends are just like, she just beats to her own drum. She wants to learn. She wants to do things. So I started out as a criminal justice major. Because of what happened to her, and because I grew up a law and order SVU child, I wanted to be a detective because I thought that was the only way that I could show up to help people. But fun fact, it wasn't. And I learned so much in that program. But when I was 21, I was raped. And I always like to say that I have been raped once that I can truly account for. Have I been assaulted more times than I can account for? Rape changes everything. It can change your entire life. It changes the way you see things, the way you talk to people, the way you love, the way you heal, the way you don't heal, all of those things. I ended up getting kicked out of school because I couldn't function. I needed to get kicked out because that was the only way I was going to leave. And this is the tricky part. I then became a rape crisis counselor. I was the person that you saw in the hospital that was there to hold your hand after you were brought in and you were receiving your SAR kit. It was volunteer work. It was the most humbling thing I ever did. At that point in my life, I said, oh, this is what I want to do. So I ended up going to school for marriage and family therapy. I found a program that was a master's in health psychology. And the reason I chose health psychology is because when trauma happens to us, it isn't just a one thing. It affects our health. It affects the way we show up. It affects different illnesses that show up in our bodies. It affects pain in our bodies. It's mental. It's physical. It's all of these things. So that is why I chose to finish my master's in that. But also I have completed an alternative degree in alternative medicine. I have studied law because I want to be able to argue back and forth with people and be accurate. I did go back and study more criminal justice. I studied rape investigation. I'm constantly learning and growing because the information is readily available, as well as the research is finally coming through. It takes so long to do research. And so for me, I go, hmm, do I actually need to go and take this test? Do I actually want to be under this governing body? And for me, the answer was no. I am not a licensed therapist, and I will tell you why. I chose to not become licensed because I feel like I work with such a unique population of humans that I don't want someone else's ideals and thoughts to stop the way that I am able to support them. Licensing for me, wasn't something that I seeked out. What I did do instead was I took a step back and I looked at who I was and the work that I wanted to do to help other people. I continued trying to figure out how I could show up for people. So that's when I found sex ed around 28 years old. I'm a late bloomer in the game, but I was able to go, oh, I see everyone talking about all these fun things, the condoms, the lubes, the sex toys, the orgasms. But what about the large populations of humans that have been assaulted that can't even get there? And I was like, there's a few people talking about it. 
but I don't think that they have my perspective of life and all of my information to be able to create something. I wanted to do something that wasn't just talking at people. I wanted to talk to people. So I created a podcast called Trauma Queen, which is cute that people now call me the Trauma Queen. Like I said, I got the sex ed. And so for me, I'm a jump in. Let me find all the education. Let me take all the classes. And so I found all of these sex ed conferences. Fun fact, most sex ed conferences have either contests or scholarships. Use them. Apply, 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 because things are expensive. Traveling to expensive hotels. So I applied to everyone. I did scholarships. I also went to something called Sex Geek Summer Camp. I went to speaking retreats. I did all kinds of things to figure out who I was becoming and how I wanted to curate it. I have always believed that storytelling and sharing is such a beautiful way to support individuals. So I had different people talking about different things. There were survivors. There were partners of survivors. There's different avenues. There's different ways that survivorship looks. Most of my work has been focused around sexual assault, the harm and the mental health and trauma, and never really about the originator of where it all began. I've never talked about in depth, my mother, the death and him being on death row and all these things until last year. It has been so interesting to kind of switch conversations. But I definitely do think about who would I have been when I had my spiritual person. She was like, I hate to say this, but her death broke a cycle. There was violence that you will never know, harm that you never know, but she changed the cycle for the future women in your life. Getting to the sperm donor, he still hasn't been prosecuted for this murder because it keeps getting pushed off. He's been back in the hometown for almost two years. He's supposed to be brought in front of the court. I have never spoken to him, but he has written me a letter. Let me tell you about it. So when I was 28, while I was at a speaking retreat, my grandmother called me and was like, hey, I hope you're not mad at me. And I was like, girl, what happened? What'd you do? And then she said, well, you got a letter today from that man that says he's your father. I've never had a DNA test. I don't know if that man is actually my father. My family didn't really know anything about him until it was too late. One of my aunts did because she was best friends with my mom. But like, let's keep it 100. I don't know if that man is really my sperm donor or not. I had a spiritual reading once and she was like, I don't think it's him. And so either way, the attachment of this man took my future away from me in a way that I couldn't control. So I had to create my own. So the letter, I was like, hey, just put it away for me. Before I got home, I called an emergency best friend meeting. In a group chat, I was like, hey, here's what's happening. I need some time. My friends are like, what do we do? Before I went through it with them, I sat in my childhood bedroom and I read the letter. I don't know where it is today, and I'm okay with that, but I will always remember, hi, this is your dad. I don't know what your grandmother and aunt have told you, but I'm not dead. This is the line that I literally was like, I don't give a fuck about anything else you have to say. In the letter, he goes, things happen between me and your mother. My bad. You took her life. You broke her nose beforehand. She left you. You lured her over and killed her right before Christmas in front of her only child. Yeah, I would say things happened. Shitty things, horrible things, life-changing things. And then he continued to say, you have a sister. I learned then that they got prison clickbait because he told me all about this person. And after he finished that sentence, he goes, if you want to know more about her, write me back. And so I read it all. And then I sat with my friends. And then everyone took turns supporting me in different ways. And we processed it and we broke that shit down. At the end of it, I felt so loved. I felt so seen. 
And I was also really pissed off. How did he get my grandparents' address? I was pissed about that. Why would you send that to someone's home who you took the life of their daughter? So I was loved and angered. I never said anything to him. I only gave my family a brief synopsis of it. I never got into depth. I never showed them the letter. That was in the fall. And then that winter, I received a Christmas card again at my grandparents' house. And it was the day that he had murdered her in their house. And I didn't even realize it was happening so quick. My mom was going through the mail and she goes, oh, this is for you. And she was like, not today. And then recently, my mom had called me and she was really upset. She was like, I got a call from this detective. I don't know what he's talking about. There's something about the guy that murdered your mom. I can't handle this right now. Can you call him? I said, absolutely. I am the absolutely I got it person in my family. So I called him back. He shared with me that the man that murdered my mother was brought to our hometown and was going to finally be held and put in front of the judge for the murder of my mother. Now, I'm 36 years old. He murdered my mother when I was one. He killed a bartender. He killed an elderly couple. And he's been on death row in Vegas. Come to find out, a few years ago, he pleaded insanity. So he will spend his life in prison. But he never got accounted for the harm that he caused to my mother and my entire family and my life. So they finally were like, oh, let's bring up charges. I'm like, okay, cool. And so what the detective wanted was to interview us. And my family was like, no. So I became the speaker. I went to each of my family, my mom, my dad, both of my aunts. And I said, I will do this. Is there anything you want me to make sure? Everyone's response was different. My dad was like, I think this should be the mother and the daughter having this conversation. My mom was like, I can't do this. I trust that you can handle this. If you need me, let me know. One of my aunts was like, well, I want to go. I said, "Mm -mm, you're too hype. You can't go. We're going to end up on the news. So I did get to go and meet with this detective. The wildest question he asked me was, well, what do you want to happen to him? And I'm like, is there like a multiple checklist? What do you mean? What do I want to happen to him? Is this a trick? If I say the wrong thing, I did get the chance to speak for my family to say, I want this person to be held full accountability for the harm and the loss of my family. I don't care if he's been in prison for 35 years. That has nothing to do with me. And I'm so sorry that those people have lost family members, but I want it documented. I want it written down that he killed Gayette Davis. I want that documented because it's not. And I've read different interviews he's done because inquisitive. One thing that he has said in court cases and wherever was, Everything that he did, he would do it again. He only feels bad for the child, which was me. Grief is weird. Honestly, if we pull a step back, like I've been in a lifetime of grieving. Even though my mother was killed at a very early age, I have photos of her. Sometimes I'm like, is this an actual memory? Did I create it? Every year for her birthday, I write. I do a post about her. I grieve a possible relationship. I grieve because people say I look like her. I grieve because people say I have a work ethic. The things that I'll never know, even with my grandfather. I grieve that he didn't fully get to see who I continuously become, but he saw me and he loved me in all the ways. And like, I will have days where (laughs) bed is where I live and that's okay. And I think part of even the social media aspect is I'm very honest about where I am. And I think that's something that's lacking on social media is that people do a lot of things for the show and it's Nah, shit sucks. It is hard. What continues to allow me to do it is the individuals that I continue to connect with. And then sometimes you just feel like you're talking to a wall. And that's often how I feel because this work isn't necessarily tangible. 
you can't necessarily look at someone and see what I have said to you has healed you. It has helped you. It's giving you strength. You don't necessarily see that. So it's not quantified the way other people's work is. But I just came back from this conference and I figured out what I needed and it wasn't going to talks. It was sitting and experiencing the people. It was sitting with my friends. It was getting massages every day. And to have numerous people that I've never seen in my life, for them to tell me that I saved their lives, that I helped them, that they admire me, that they follow my work, that they appreciate me. That is something that I can never get over. And I think that is the biggest gift that allows me to keep going, knowing that, yes, have I had shitty things happen in my life? Absolutely. But to know that me sharing the shitty things and how I navigated it, how I always put honesty first. Like you will see me sometimes say, I'm not having a great day. Today I slept most of the day because of all the travel I've done. And I could have pushed through, but I was like, hey, body, I'm going to listen to you. We're going to go back to sleep. And so I think being very aware at this point in my mid-30s has allowed me to continue to do these things, but also the awareness that I can look outside of myself. That has also been really helpful. Although the topics both of our shows cover may be grave, I am very excited to share about Inhuman Podcast. The goal of Inhuman's hosts, Andrea and Haley, is to humanize the victims of true crime and to highlight the facets of the cases that are often overlooked. They often share missing persons and unsolved crime cases to help bring awareness. Haley and Andrea are passionate about sharing victim and survivor stories, especially lesser-known cases that you may not have yet heard of. Inhuman covers two new true crime cases weekly and presents a new case with each episode. New episodes of Inhuman are released every Monday and Thursday and are available on all podcast platforms. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Inhuman Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you like to listen. You can also find them on TikTok and Instagram at Inhuman underscore podcast, or check out their website, inhumanpodcast.com. If you could share in any depth that you choose, what kind of healing modalities really worked for you and any insight you could possibly share in terms of finding the right one for people? Honestly, I think trial and error. If you know you don't want to talk, then don't do talk therapy. Because everyone's always like, you should do talk therapy. That doesn't work for everyone. And then I also want to give people permission out the gate. If you do talk therapy and you like it, but you don't like that person, fire them. You can break up with them. It's okay. Do not feel like you need to stay with a therapist just because you signed up with them. I will be honest with you. I went spiritual first. I found someone that taught me how to meditate. We did card readings and I did the woo. I crystalled and I did all these things that felt good for me to be able to feel like I got back into my body. I love somatic therapy. I haven't done a lot of it in practice, but I love the way that it works for people. Because think about this. Talk therapy is great. We're also getting it out. We are sharing it. But the harm that happened to us is predominantly often in our bodies. And so somatic therapy, it connects with movement and release and breathing techniques. I am an herbalist. I look into different herbs. This is the extreme that for sure is not for everyone. 10-day silent retreats, I have done it twice. I will do it again. It is really hard because you have to sit with yourself. 
you are meditating the whole time. You take a vow of silence. And then until the end of that 10 days, you don't speak to anyone. And it really forces you to sit in all the ways that you distract yourself. It was years into somatic work, talk therapy, the crystals, the meditations before I got there to be able to do it. But 10 day silent retreats, Vipassana, they're free. You can donate whatever you would like at the end. You are fed, you are housed, you are forced to be within yourself. And for me, that was really good because I will be so busy doing so many things and avoiding it. I wish that we all knew that we were where we were supposed to be and that we didn't have to move faster for someone else. No one can tell you where you should be, where you could go. You're allowed to rest and figure that shit out on your own time. It's also okay to fluctuate in being able to do things and not. Be honest with yourself. Do you need to be around people? Do you not need to be around people? Do you need to sleep more? Do you need to stretch? Do you need nature? I think that we look so often to what other people are doing. We're not listening to ourselves when our bodies are already telling us what we need. Allow yourself to slow down. And if you don't know, that's okay. You don't always have all the answers all the time. We're constantly growing every day. But at least lean into whatever community you do have, whatever trust you do have, regardless if this is people in your physical life or digital life. Because I know there are so many people that survive because of message boards and video games and social media in general. That's okay. So I just want folks to know that whatever they need right now, if it's to take a gym class, if it's to cook, if it's to sleep, that that's okay. Because you are doing what you need to do right now. Self-care versus self-soothing. I feel like people think self-care is like going to the spa, going to get your hair done. Cool, this is self-care. When really it's like, how do you survive? If that's feeding yourself, taking your medication, maybe it is getting massages because you have pain, whatever you need to do to survive. And then there's the self-soothing things. Those are the things that allow different types of healing. And you need both of these things to survive. For me, my self-soothing was watching professional wrestling and now I get to do it and make money doing it, which is so cool. So figure out what self-soothing looks like and self-care. Sit down, write it out. A self-care list, a self-soothing list. You will notice that some of the things you do overlap and you will notice new things about yourself. I've never had anyone do that assignment and they go, oh, I knew all this. They're like, oh shit, I never thought about what self-soothing looks like for me. And I always thought self-care meant I had to spend a lot of money and neither of those are true. So figure out where you are present day to even think about tomorrow. The Jiminyka Project is where I house my writing, my teaching, my speaking. I am a world-traveled speaker. I talk about specific things. Because for me, I'm like, if you're doing too many, you can't do anything great. So I talk about sex after trauma, how to support survivors. I think those are all super, super important conversations. And then I can curate different things like boundaries. Communication is big for me. I also have a support group for sexual assault survivors that are feminine, non-binary, and that I've been doing for five, six years. Then there is Tending the Garden. Tending the Garden is my nonprofit for sexual assault survivors that have been marginalized. Next year, we hope to be able to do our first in-person retreats. One thing that I do love and I'm super excited about that is open to not only just survivors of sexual assault, but survivors of existing, honey, because existing sometimes is really hard. So we have a subscription service. It's a cute little box that comes to your door. It varies. We have done a watering box, we've done a grounding box. 
right now we're working on a sex box called For When You're Ready. And so that'll be the next box that comes out. All of these boxes live on our website that are a la carte. I work with my friend Lenora Claire. We do true crime work where we support survivors of different crimes on movie sets, documentaries, wherever. We want to make sure that no one is exploited because that's what people love to do, exploit survivors to make money off of us. And we don't stand for that. Even before we get on a set, we are very intentional to meet with these people beforehand, whether it's in person or digital. So we know where they are, wherever they're navigating their healing. How can we support you? What do you not want to talk about? What do you want us to make sure that we're holding space for you? And we meet with the producers and whomever beforehand, also being like, hey, we need to make sure that this is handled well. And then we're on site. Whenever the filming is happening, we are also there. Regardless of how prepared you are in your head, it can change when you're sitting in front of a camera. You can only be so prepared. So I'm always with people like, let's think about what might happen. Let's go through options. Working with companies, when they see that this isn't just about telling what happened, but also taking care of people, I think it's done differently. We want to make sure that when this person comes in here, they feel safe. And when they leave, they also don't feel like they were just used and that they didn't get what they wanted to say across. We also put together care bags and care packages. Their adrenaline was up telling this story and they're going to drop. So we make sure that they have hydration internally and externally, little snacks, little soft things, something tactile because people get fidgety and they need something to hold or squeeze. We make bags particular to each person. Whatever feels good for that person, having it next to them, even having them know that one of us is right outside or we are watching, creating a safety signal has been really helpful. We make sure that they also know that we are here for whatever they need after, because until whatever they create comes out, they might feel anxious. And then we are going to check in with you again when whatever is created comes out, because then it's real again. There's one thing to film and create something, right? But then the day that it drops, that's a whole nother thing. Oh shit, am I vulnerable? Who's going to think what? Who's going to try to tell me that I did this thing wrong? Because that's what the consumption tells you is you could have got out of this. This isn't a crossword puzzle that you need to solve. You don't need to break down everyone's story. You are not a detective. You don't need to go, well, this is what I think. We don't need a devil's advocate. The devil can handle it themselves. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you think. This is someone's real life. And so within the same work, we want to make sure that no one forgets that these are people's real lives. I feel like TikTok has really changed the way people create content and the way that people consume content. I feel like sometimes people feel pressured to share more than they're ready to because they want to keep up. They want to make sure that people consume them. Some survivors, they're like, I've been through some shit. I got bills. How do I make it? Let me tell my story. Let me travel and do these things. And that's fine. I want people to also know that other people just do it as their healing option. The only thing that I want people to do is to only share what they feel comfortable actually sharing versus what they think they should be sharing. Everyone says survivorship differently. Some people go and they speak and this is how they make their money. If we're being honest, we do use what has happened to us to allow us to survive. We do things that share it, but I think there's a way to do it. We saw Dahmer. We know what happened and it is awful. We don't need 6,000 movies that keep telling us the same thing when we're not focusing on the people that have survived it or the ways that these people have been affected. 
we all consume true crime every day and there's different levels of it. If you're scrolling through social media, we are hit with it every day. And I think you have a choice. It's how do you consume it? Are you consuming it as I want to know more about this person? I want to know where they are. It's such an interesting, unique story that I've never heard. But are you consuming it because you are distracting from your own life? Be mindful in all parts of your life. What is the purpose that you are consuming this information? I used to watch so many things. And now I'm like, you know what? I just don't have it in me. Because all I can think about is what about the families of these people that have been taken? What about the people that have to see this every day and see multiple movies? People acting out people in their lives being killed. That's shitty. I just want people to think about that. There's someone on the other side of it. There's someone. These are the lives we have to live with. We don't just get to turn Netflix and Hulu off. I think that the way that people consume and the fact that Dahmer has fans, someone compared me to Dexter. Someone was like, oh my God, have you ever seen the television show Dexter? If you murdered people, I would totally understand because you're just like Dexter. And I'm like, what? I don't think you should say that out loud to people. If I killed people, you'd be okay with it because I've had a past. That was a pretty wild statement. I just want people to think about how they consume us because true crime is consuming other people's lives. So please just be mindful. Something that we say in sex ed is you want to make sure you leave the campground cleaner than when you were there. Don't come and fuck up and be wild and try to solve all these crimes of all these people that you're listening to on this podcast, but truly hear what we are sharing, where we've been where we're going and what we are creating to share into the world. I think that is such an important piece. I also co-own an intimacy coordination company where we focus on supporting marginalized folks. We are for everyone, but we want to make sure that the education that you are all getting is very well-rounded. And the cool part about us is most of our entire program is online, which no one else does. You will have to do an in-person with us for some parts of the training, but it's very minimal. And the latest job, it is one of my dream jobs. I now work in professional wrestling as a mental health liaison. I am under the medical department and I work for All Elite Wrestling, also known as AEW, where I get to support all of the wrestlers and the entire staff, myself, and this amazing co-person that I get to work with, Dr. David Reese. I'm not getting hit with anything, but my brain works in a way that shows up for these individuals. And I think that is always such a gift. So those are the things I'm doing right now. Are there probably more? Yeah, but that's what I can remember. You can find my work at traumaqueen.love. Yes, it is love. And if you want to find out more about Tending the Garden, that's tendingthegarden.love. You can also follow the social media accounts, tendingthegarden.for, like the number, .sas, for Tending the Garden for Sexual Assault. So that's on Instagram. And if you are looking for me, I am Jiminika, J-I-M-A-N-E-K-I-A on all social media platforms. I will tell you, Instagram is more educational. Twitter is more of my anger and wrestling conversations, arguing and sharing information. Thank you so much for your time. I think your insight is so poignant and necessary. Thank you. I think you ask cool questions. I like questions that people don't ask me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode next week on What Came Next. There's still things I do today that I have to remind myself I'm a 40-year-old woman with my own family and no one's going to ridicule me for being lazy or not doing a good job. 
And so it's those type of everyday normal things that are permeated by decades of ridicule, control, and scrutiny. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.